This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. So this is um, the first in a special series of episodes that I'm doing. It is called A Seat at the Table. And in this series, we will be highlighting cabinet members, starting with the Washington administration and working our way forward from there to give us a chance to really do a bit more of a deep dive into some figures who we may have covered in the narrative of the podcast, but didn't necessarily get as much attention, didn't get the focus that we can really give in this special series. And with this special series, so we will be going through the life of the cabinet member. And then at the end, we will do a ranking. If you are familiar with Rex Factor, Totalis Rankium, Pontifax, kind of along those lines. But with this, um, instead of having a regular co-host, I'm going to have special guests on each episode. And my special guest today is Alicia from Civics and Coffee. Alicia, thank you so much for being here. So glad to have you on this first episode. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. I can't wait to see which cabinet member we're talking about today. Absolutely. And before we get started, I want to give you a chance to um, just share with our audience a little about Civics and Coffee. Sure. Thanks. Uh, so Civics and Coffee is a weekly podcast that I like to do all about history. And I like to break down historical topics, figures, and events in the time it takes you to enjoy your cup of coffee or your cup of tea or your cup of water, whatever it is. So I try to do bite-sized episodes, try to keep it under 15 minutes. Sometimes it goes a little bit over. Uh, nothing's been longer than 20, I don't believe. Um, so yeah, it's it's a great opportunity if you didn't think you liked history in high school or or even in college um give it a give it a whirl because i think it's all about the messenger of history and i'm a super history nerd i say that in my intro so give it a shot and uh come on over i'd I'd love to have uh more people engage with the podcast well, you are definitely in good company. Um, for our listeners, uh, we do have video enabled, and Alicia was commenting on my presidential library behind me. Uh, I imagine you've got a host of books as well. You are in good company in terms of history nerds. So, <laughs> <laughs> and so, highly recommend checking out Civics and Coffee, and uh, Alicia and Civics and Coffee covers some of the stuff that we're going to be talking about today, because we are going to discuss a figure that I know you have some opinions on, Alexander Hamilton. Oh, Alex. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Alex. We, have got, we have got to get started with Hamilton. So... <laughs> 
just getting us started uh, at the very beginning. So he was born on the island of Nevis in the Caribbean out of wedlock to uh, Rachel Fawcett, who was a married woman of British and French Huguenot descent, and James Hamilton, who was a Scotsman. Now, Rachel had been married previously on St. Croix to a merchant and had one son by him, but she actually left her husband and her son in 1750 and went to St. Kitts where she met James. And then those two moved together to Nevis, which is where Alexander was born. Now, there are a couple of um, questions about Alexander Hamilton's early life. First of all, there was speculation that Rachel was multiracial, but it doesn't seem to be uh, substantiated by evidence. But opponents of Hamilton would bring that up and use that as a political attack against him. Also, we don't know exactly what year Hamilton was born in. It was either 1755 or 1757. Scholars have studied this, and it seems like 1757 is more likely, but we don't know definitively. We do know that he was born on January 11th, so as we're going through and talking about his age at certain points, it will be with the caveat of he was either two years older, two (laughs) years younger. We don't really know. (laughs) So makes things a little interesting. So as he was growing up, as Hamilton was growing up, his father, James, actually abandoned the family. And so Rachel and, and they, they did have two, uh, another um, child because Alexander was the second child. The first was James Hamilton Jr. But James Sr. abandoned the family. And so Rachel and her two sons moved to St. Croix where she had a small store that supported them. Unfortunately, um, Hamilton's life had some tragedies early on. Um, Rachel died of yellow fever in February 1768, and so at the age of either 11 or 13, <laughs> Hamilton was an orphan. Yeah. Now, and, and this is something that's interesting because he kept up a correspondence with his father, but you know the fact that his father abandoned him, but he still had some connections with him is is interesting. But he didn't move back with his father when Rachel passed away. Um, him and his brother were briefly took in by a cousin who soon died afterwards by suicide. So again, like lots of tragedy in his early life. So the two Hamilton sons had to figure out what to do. James Jr. was apprenticed to a local carpenter while Alexander was taken in by a merchant from Nevis, uh, Thomas Stevens. And he became a clerk at an import-export firm that traded with New York and New England. Now, even at this early age, he quickly proved himself. He was so good at this job that he was actually left in charge of the firm for five months in 1771 while the owner was away. Mm -hmm. And and this is an early indication of Hamilton as having this, this... skill and expertise, even though he was at this early age. Um, And we'll see that more as we go through his life, that that he constantly lives up to challenges. And trying to prove himself, I think, too, right? Like with all of his, uh, you know, his parents passing away and his father um, abandoning him and then his, his, 
pseudo family, you know, dying of suicide. Um, I think one of the things that really impacts him is he wants to, to prove that he's worthy. Right. And so he really commits to any role that he takes on for, for good or bad. So um, yeah, it's always interesting to see how early he took that on. He's like, yep, I'm going to, I'm going to take that job and I'm going to show you that I am definitely worth it. So yeah. Absolutely. And, and that's the thing, you know, we, we see him in these difficult positions in his early life. And you do get a sense that he is constantly trying to prove himself, case in point, with his education. So he only really had some tutoring and um, he took he had some classes at a private school, but he also made use of the family library of 34 books to educate himself. You know, this was part of his kind of self-improvement. And with his work and improving himself to folks in the Caribbean, um, he actually had benefactors who provided funding for him to go to New York City. And he, when he got there, he enrolled in King's College, which is now Columbia University, in 1773. So here we have this orphan son able to go to college and being able to have an experience that many people at the time didn't. And, you know, it's, it's definitely an interesting rise for him. Unfortunately, his education was interrupted by a little thing we call the Revolutionary War. Just a, just a minor detour. <laughs> just, just a minor, little, little minor thing. So he, he was enrolled in 1773, but as we know, you know, soon afterwards, 1775, you have Lexington and Concord. And so after that, Hamilton and other King's College students joined a volunteer militia company. They were called the Corsicans, which later became the Hearts of Oak. Now, he initially tried to keep up with his studies while he was training, but he really started to take an interest in military history and tactics. And at the time, he actually stepped in. Um, the college president, Miles Cooper, was a loyalist. And with tensions running high, Cooper was actually attacked by an angry mob, and Hamilton steps in to save him. But Hamilton is very much committed to the Patriot cause, the cause of the revolution. Um, and so he actually, in 1776, raises a group of 60 men to become the New York Provincial Company of Artillery. And Hamilton was elected as captain. So he's starting to step into these leadership positions and he's starting to develop in this, this military career. So around this time, um, we have uh, George Washington and his forces come to New York City, try to defend the city from the British. It's a failure. Uh, Washington and his troops flee. Hamilton actually flees with them. And so this is the end of his college career. You know, now he is firmly in the military. King's College, even if he wanted to continue, was actually closed due to the war and the occupation. So that's Hamilton's college career done. <laughs> But he keeps on with the military. Um, he participates in the Battle of Princeton in January 1777. And during this battle, some British forces had taken refuge in Nassau Hall. And Hamilton took the initiative. He had three cannons brought up and ordered his forces to fire on the building. 
Now, if you've got cannons pointed at you, it makes it likely that you're you're going to say, "Okay, I, I don't I, I don't want to trust that this <laughs> building will last." So, naturally, the British surrender and U.S. forces win the battle. But with Hamilton's career in the military, um, he soon ends up being taken off of the battlefield, and he's invited to serve as an aide to two of Washington's generals. But he he really wants to have that 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 career on the battlefield, and so he declines those offers. But when he gets an offer from General Washington to serve as his aide, and that would rise him to the rank of lieutenant colonel, Hamilton accepts, mm-hmm. and so he joins uh, Washington's staff. And so he serves in this position for four years. And Alicia, I know you can speak to this as well. You know, this is a key point for Hamilton's career. You know, this this connection to George Washington and really proving himself at this point. Yeah, I think that was one of the moments where he he saw an opportunity to prove how how valuable he was and how worthy he was. And again, it. You know, it always for me. It always harkens back to his childhood. I think you know mm-hmm. uh, George Washington is this well-respected general. He's an elder statesman. He's got you know a lot of gravitas, and you know Hamilton's one thing that I feel like is consistent throughout his career is he is going to prove to everyone that he's he's much more than the orphan from the Caribbean, right? And I know he was very um, secretive about that, very, he didn't like to talk about his, his upbringing, but I think that in, he internalized that a lot. And I think a mm-hmm. lot of his successes came from that impetus, right? He He really wanted to make sure that people knew him for all of the things that he was capable of doing and not necessarily where he came from. Mm-hmm. And- I think regardless, you got to respect at least that you, because, you know, he might've been a little forceful. He might've been a little, um, a little devious in some of his, his efforts, but I think it, it all, it all came from that wanting to, to make sure that people knew, you know, he was worthy and he could do this and by God, he's going to get that respect. So. Absolutely. And and you really see this in this this role because he he throws himself into the work. Um he ends up he's responsible for managing Washington's immense amount of paperwork and correspondence. And so in this, you know, here you go, you have this this young aide who is corresponding with generals, the Continental Congress, state governors, trying to manage this apparatus of the Continental Army and Washington heavily relies on him for that. You know, at first he he just kind of drafts orders and, and letters under Washington's direction, but Washington becomes familiar with this work. He sees that he's capable. And so he starts to kind of trust Hamilton. To Hamilton the, wouldn't yeah, yeah, to the point where like Hamilton just started ghostwriting for him, right? He's just like yeah. Exactly. Washington's like, you got this. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. I trust you. And, you know, I, I think that also played a, a heavy part in his later his later career, you know, especially when it, when he's going against, you know, Thomas Jefferson and uh, John Adams. I know we're skipping ahead a little bit, <laughs> um, but just he got he got so used to having such influence and such power so early on in his career that when, you know, another statesman 
was like, no, I got this. You know, I think he didn't know what to do. And yeah, again, I think, you know, just having that relationship with Washington was so pivotal for for mm-hmm. him and his development and, and his career. So um, yeah, it's pretty cool that that Washington trusted him so much so quickly. Absolutely. And and that's the thing, like, you know, this this becomes a key point for him, you know, not just in, in developing this this close relationship with Washington and, and earning Washington's trust. This also gives him an opportunity to get involved in diplomatic efforts, in intelligence. And he also gets to know various leaders, including the Marquis de Lafayette, John Lawrence of South Carolina. He really gets to know some of these folks who would play a, a role in the Revolutionary War, but then afterwards, you know, he he knows the movers and shakers. And that really that becomes key to his opportunities moving forward. But it wasn't all, you know, he, he was very busy and he was very committed to his work, but he also, in the midst of this, got married to Elizabeth or as she's more known as Eliza Schuyler. And so the two in their marriage would end up having eight children. And we'll talk a bit more about Eliza and and their relationship and some of the strains on it <laughs> soon enough. But as time goes on, and so I said that he served in this role as Washington's primary aide for four years, he gets back to this point. He's like... I really didn't want to be on staff. I wanted to be in the battlefield. I wanted to be earning that military glory. And and again, I think that gets back to that point of trying to prove himself. And so he ends up getting in this minor dust up with Washington. And, and you almost get a sense that he was just trying to find a way to get, you know, whatever excuse to leave the staff. Yeah. And it it works. So he Washington resists because again, this is somebody that he can trust. It takes so much off of him mm-hmm. to have Hamilton on his staff doing this work. But Hamilton pushes it to the point he just threatens to resign his commission altogether. And Washington finally says, "You know what? You've given me this much time. You've given me this much of your effort. Okay, I will make you a field commander." And so. Then we get to the Battle of Yorktown, and this is really Hamilton's, you know, if there is a point of like military glory for Hamilton, this is it. You know, he's given command of three battalions, and he works with the Allied French troops to take two of the British positions, and he actually leads a nighttime attack to take one of them while the, the French take the other. And, and this was key to the British surrender at the Battle of Yorktown, which even though they kind of had a sense at the time, but we know this was it. This was the end of the Revolutionary War. And Hamilton had that role in that. Um, So he finally gets some military glory. He's finally at a place where he can say, you know what? I led the troops. We succeeded. I have prestige. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. The kind of prestige that he wants. Because I think, you know, being an aide to the general is is hugely prestigious and, and, you know, very, um, very worthy of distinction. But I think, you know, he he's very committed to, again, over and over again, proving himself and wanting the specific titles and the specific, um, you know, uh, the 
I'm blanking on the word, but he was very, he was very committed to making sure that he was seen as valiant and brave and a a tour de force basically. And um, Mm -hmm. I think I think part of that, that, that dedication led him to some self-sabotage as I'm sure we'll get into. Um, oh, and yes. so it's, it's interesting to, to kind of see that, that dichotomy. Cause I think even he got lucky, I think with the battle of Yorktown, I mean, mm-hmm. it's a great ending for him, but you know, the fact that he kind of self-sabotaged his relationship, his, his position with, with Washington only to just because he wanted that, that glory in battle is, is I think, Indicative of how the rest of his career and public service is going to go. <laughs> yes, because that 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 self sabotage. I mean, and, and we'll be getting into it, but yes, it's a pattern that we see time and again when he gets something in his mind that he wants, and he doesn't really care how he's mm-hmm. how he gets it, but he doesn't think through necessarily the long term implications for it. Yeah. And so, you know, he's finally got that glory that he wanted. And so he resigns his commission in March 1782. So his time in the Continental Army is over. He goes back to New York and he passes the bar in in July of 1782. And then he accepts an offer to become the receiver of Continental taxes for the state government. And so now he's moving into more of the political realm and you, you know, we're we're going to see some more of this this rise to power and, and glory and all that, because he's also appointed uh, that July as a delegate to the Congress of the Confederation. Now, going into Congress, Hamilton was already frustrated with the structure of the Confederation government. He had had plenty of experience serving on Washington staff seeing just how disorganized and ineffective the government was. At this point, the Confederation government had no power to collect taxes or to force the states to financially support the national government. And so he goes to Congress and he's like, okay, we need to do something about this. So he meets a fellow delegate from the state of Virginia, James Madison, and the two of them um, try to advance a proposed amendment to give Congress the power to collect import duties in order to fund the government. Well, the problem with the Confederation Congress is that if any state vetoes it, it's done. Rhode Island said no. (laughs) Amendment is gone. He quickly becomes frustrated with Congress and ends up resigning a year after he started. So (laughs) that didn't last long. But he returns to New York and, and really starts to get his law practice going And he actually specializes in defending loyalist and British subjects in his practice. Also at this time, he helped found the Bank of New York, which is still one of the oldest U.S. banks still in existence. He worked with other New York leaders to reopen King's College. So, you know, the experiences that he got there, apparently, and we can see that that he thought they were worthwhile enough that he wanted those experiences for others, but they refound it as Columbia College, and, and eventually it becomes Columbia University. So he is elected to another office in the New York State Legislature. From here, he's chosen as a delegate to the Constitutional Convention. With this, and, and with the Constitutional Convention, you know, we, we do hear of Hamilton's thoughts um, and, and kind of his visions for the federal government. 
he wasn't necessarily at the convention as influential as some of the other leaders. And we see that because when we look at the draft of his idea for the Constitution, Hamilton argued for the elected president and the, the elected senators to serve for life. Yeah. Now, there was a provision for them to be removed for corruption or abuse, but still for life. He also wanted multi-stage elections for both senators would be elected in proportion to the population. The president would have an absolute veto. State governors would be appointed by the federal government. And the Supreme Court would have immediate jurisdiction over all lawsuits involving the U.S. So his idea of government is very centralized and powerful government. And he actually didn't present this idea to the convention, but naturally he talked with folks about it. And so he starts to get this reputation of, you know, kind of power hungry. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And at the time, you know, even though um, folks at the convention were like, yeah, we, you know, we need a stronger government. We don't need it that strong. (laughs) Yeah, I think too they uh, were. It's a little too more <laughs> yeah, on were, the, the other side. <laughs> yeah, they were really, you know, they were really opposed to any kind of strong central government because they said, "Look, we just we just had a war where we were trying to cast off a strong central government trying to tell us how to live our lives. What are you doing coming in here being like, oh, well, that's what we need. All hail the king." So I, you know, I think the. Again, his approach, I, I think, is probably what rubbed people the wrong way because he can be so forceful. Mm. Um, he's not necessarily wrong, right? The I think the the Articles of Confederation were were weak and and pretty much doomed from the start, as I've said in in previous episodes. And so he has he has good valid points. It's just he went to the extreme, I think, not realizing like read the room, Alex, like the. <laughs> There's context, man. We gotta, we gotta see what, what, what just happened. What did we just come through? And now you're kind of saying, well, let's just do that, but in America, like, mm, probably wasn't going to succeed. Of a king, we'll call, we'll call it a president. It's, it's, it's <laughs> <Daisies>. different. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and so of course these ideas didn't really go anywhere. We ended up with the Constitution as it is. Hamilton actually wasn't completely sold on the Constitution. He did sign it, and he was the only New York delegate to sign the Constitution, but he was still kind of concerned, you know, is Mm -hmm. this really going to work? And especially like we see in his draft, it's like he didn't think that this was powerful enough, and we may have some of the same problems again. Which is so interesting, considering his his authorship of all of the Federalist Papers, right? It's, you know, I I think people, people don't necessarily realize that he wasn't I mean, he was like, all right, it's okay. I have some concerns, but you would never know that because he wrote all of those papers in defense of the constitution, trying to get people to ratify it and trying to outline all of its, its positive uh, aspects. And um, I've always found that piece so interesting, you know, like, oh, you did, you weren't really, you know, thrilled with, with the constitution as is, which I, I feel like is a pretty consistent trend amongst all the signers of the, of the constitution. They were all kind of like, well, it's the best that we can do right now. So let's just, you know, we can always amend it later, which is a whole nother thing we can get into later. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, and, and, and you, you bring up a point, you know, with the federalist papers. So as much effort as he put in, so, you know, the federalist papers were designed, it, it was, 
New York was still kind of wavering on whether to ratify the Constitution or not. And so Hamilton partnered with his friend James Madison and fellow New Yorker John Jay to write a series of essays, which would help to explain this new government and kind of making arguments about how this would be an improvement over the Articles of Confederation. Now, all of these were published under the pseudonym Publius, and there were 85 essays total. And and this gets to your point. So, you know, out of these three collaborators, Jay only wrote five. <laughs> Madison wrote a few more at 29. But by and large, this was Hamilton's effort. 51 essays explaining this new government that he apparently didn't really feel... <laughs> Wasn't completely in love with. (laughs) (laughs) But it works. The New York State Convention ratifies the Constitution by a vote of 30 to 27. And so, yeah, but New York comes into the Union. The Constitution is ratified. And now we have a new government and a new president who is somebody that Hamilton knows quite well, George Washington. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Now, and this is a point that I don't think... As many people know, um, because we we know of how Hamilton's time in the cabinet came, but Hamilton wasn't Washington's first choice. So Robert Morris, who was has been called the financier of the revolution, he had been superintendent of finance under the Confederation government. And so this was a person, you know, Washington knew him. He was like, he's good with finance. Let's go ahead and tap him, bring him into the new government. Well, Morris was like, eh, I'm not really feeling that, but I do know a guy. <laughs> and you know a guy. His name is Hamilton. And Washington's a little reluctant at first, but Morris is like, you know, just trust me, you want him. And so Washington agrees. He offers his position to Hamilton. Hamilton takes it. And he takes charge of the new Treasury Department, which is the largest department in the new government. At that point, there were 500 employees, which included customs collectors at the ports. He had a large staff across the nation. You know, this was going to be a position that had a a massive influence Mm -hmm. on the nation. Mm -hmm. Now, with this, when Hamilton came into the cabinet, one of the first things that Washington approached him with was, you know, our finances are in a mess. We've got a lot to sort through. I need a plan. Can you please come up with something? Let's let's talk. Let's figure out what we can do. And so naturally, Hamilton jumps at the chance. He starts putting his mind to work and comes up with this multifaceted plan that he felt would get the nation's finances back under control and help the nation to grow. So a few pieces of this plan, starting with the public credit. So 
at this point, there were various types of debt that were out there, whether it was from the, the actual federal government, state governments, promissory notes for um, veterans, things like that. There are all these different forms of debt, and nobody really knew just the scope of it. And so Hamilton started there. He's like, let's do an inventory. Where are we really at? And he also wanted to determine who were the creditors. Mm -hmm. Was it a domestic creditor? Was it foreign? And so once he had a, a better idea of where the nation's debt was, he proposed that the federal government go ahead and assume the debts of the states and basically take on all of this debt for the federal government in order to establish a larger line of credit. He outlined his plan to gradually pay off 5% of the debt annually until it was completely paid. And he knew that basically if, if the nation was able to pay off its debt, prove that it was a trusted creditor, then we could get more credit when we needed it. There were, of course, objections to this, and oh, especially yeah. um, since some of the states had already paid off their debt, and they're like, hey, now you're letting this state, you know, they haven't paid anything. We we were good. We were diligent. We paid off our debt. Why are they getting off scot-free? You're just going to take their debt and, and say you don't have to worry about it. There were some strong objections to that, and also, you know, <laughs> After his inventory, everybody realized, oh, wow, this is a massive amount of debt. Mm -hmm. And can we really deal with this? Do we have the ability <laughs> to pay this off? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> well, and still, I think I, I think another misconception, too, is that the while the, the Constitution had been signed <clears throat> and it was the United States of America, there was still very much a regional focus and a state mm. focus, right? People didn't consider themselves citizens of the United States. They were citizens of Pennsylvania, of New Jersey, of New York. And so I think that also played into the hesitance and the resistance. You know, I am Virginian and I don't need to pay Rhode Island's taxes or Rhode Island's debts. I, I have paid my debt to society. I, and I, so I think that also played into it is just, we weren't, we weren't a, a one country yet. It still took a, a little bit. So. Absolutely. And, and that's the thing, like Hamilton, you really get a sense that he was not in that mindset. He was like, we are one nation and we need to operate. The federal government needs to operate as one nation. Articles of Confederation, we were all these disparate states we don't need that anymore. And and a key part of kind of bringing the nation together in Hamilton's vision was the National Bank. Mm -hmm. So Hamilton did research, you know, as he, as he was trying to think through his his financial plan, he studied the operations of the Bank of England as well as previous American banks um including the one he helped establish, the Bank of New York, as well as the Bank of North America. And so he finally got his thoughts together, and he proposed the chartering of a national bank with a capitalization of $10 million, uh, which would be uh, one-fifth of that would be handled by the government. And basically, this bank would loan money to the federal government so they would have some on-hand funds, you know, as they're trying to pay off all these debts, and, and you still had to have money to operate the government. And so the national bank would help with that. Likewise, that debt would be repaid. He had a plan for that. 
but this bank would also work with private investors and shareholders. Hamilton realized that if the nation was going to succeed, there needed to be funding for private enterprise as well. And he saw the National Bank as being kind of a, a, a stable force to be able to promote the economy, to be able to promote domestic manufacturing, to really be able to build the nation financially, not just in terms of the government, but in terms of business, in terms of industry. So the National Bank was key to this. Likewise, what do you need to run an economy? Money. (laughs) So he made a proposal for the U.S. Mint. He wanted to establish a mint that was kind of based on European examples. But instead of basing the fractional coinage on eighths like the Spanish, so you've heard of pieces of eight, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, he proposed using decimals, which is why we now have five cents, 10 cents. You know, he he was like, piece of eight, that doesn't make sense. So, (laughs) (laughs) But with all of this, so there needed to be a way to bring in revenues. Mm-hmm. You know, as, as we're trying to pay off the debt, we need something to actually pay it off with. So he proposes establishing tariffs and excise taxes. With the tariffs, he proposed raising money through an increase on duties on various things, including some manufactured goods and some luxury goods, you know, things that were going to be purchased by the, the well-to-do people who could pay the taxes. And it was things such as tea, coffee, cocoa, wine, things that weren't you know necessary, but were just you know luxuries for folks. And with this, and and especially like with the manufactured goods, it was with this added benefit. So at this point, American manufacturing it was it it was very small. Mm-hmm. Most of the stuff that you know were manufactured goods were imported. And Hamilton realized, okay, why don't we make that here? Why don't we have factories that employ folks and be able to make these goods? And especially if it's something that's critical, like at this point, uh, firearms were mostly imported. There was some domestic, but by and large, they were imported. And when you're talking about national security, (laughs) um, the fact that you're relying on other people for your weapons, uh, what happens if... You know, we end up in a war with them or or they just cut off that trade. He realized that we need it to have certain things manufactured in the U.S. And so these tariffs would help to protect these fledgling industries because maybe it it takes more to make it here because, you know, we, we aren't as skilled. We don't have some of the equipment, things like that. But if you start to make the imported goods more expensive than the domestic goods, then folks are like, okay, well, maybe, you know, maybe that's a good idea. Maybe I can start up a factory. Maybe I can start to manufacture this. And it ultimately brings those costs down. It makes it more efficient and it it adds to the economy. So, you know, this is all kind of going in Hamilton's mind of really helping to build you know, not just the finances of the government, but a domestic the economy, economy of the yeah. nation. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. That's what, one of the things, you know, that I I do admire about him, that his brain was 
able to think about all of this, you know, for me, economics, I, you know, macro, micro, I, I, I can't, let's just throw the whole thing out. Um, but, you know, just, he had a good point, right? Like, like you were saying, if you make the stuff that you're importing more expensive than what's made domestically, you're going to be, you know, more apt to, to pick that domestic product. And then that in, in, part will increase the the domestic production and will feed more into the economy because then they're going to be able to hire more people and and pay more taxes. And, um, and just the fact that he was able to come up with that system as complicated as it is, that works, right? It's pretty baffling. Um, And so I got to give him snaps for that because uh, it's pretty much a very similar model than what we use today. So um, snaps to, to Alexander. Absolutely. And and I think you, you make a good point there. Some of these ideas are key to our economics today. And so you, you really see the legacy of what he was crafting at this point. Now, with this, uh, he also proposed an excise tax on whiskey, um, which would help to pay off the, the state debts that the federal government was taking over. There would be a few problems with that, though. Just, and just a we, small, small, just, wee little rebellion. <laughs> <laughs> just a little one, which we will talk about shortly. But, you know, you, you get a sense like this is a massive proposal. And yeah. so, you know, he starts sending these reports to Congress. And first of all, you know, Congress is like, okay, what what are you proposing now? Hold on, I've got to read this again. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, what? But when they finally start to realize what's going on, it generates hot debate. You know, um, some members are fearing that Hamilton's plans would put too much power in the hands of the federal government at the expense of the states. And that was really his point. <laughs> <laughs> he, he wanted to do that. <laughs> there were also arguments with the National Bank you know, folks were looking at, hold on. I just read, reread the constitution. I'm not seeing anything about drafting a national bank in there. Yep. Is that really something that we can do? And again, this idea that it would give the federal government this immense amount of power over the economy. It was also, there were also concerns that Hamilton's plans would favor merchants and more urban parts of the nation at the expense of farmers and rural areas. And there was also a concern that this would benefit financial speculators, you know, and and you have some members of Congress and some members of the government, including James Madison and the secretary of state, Thomas Jefferson, who are like, you know, we need to support small farmers. We need to support this, this rural economy. That's how we build the nation. You know, we, we make sure that folks can establish their, their farms. They can be self-sufficient. We don't need all these factories and all this. You know, we don't need to have all these merchants. We don't need financial speculation and all this. And they, I, I think, too, like that is another example of like he was a visionary and, mm-hmm. you know, there was, like you said, there were two two trains of thought, right? On one side, 
Alexander Hamilton saw, you know, manufacturing and importation and trade is really going to be how America got out of debt and also started creating money, right? Both with domestic taxes and international trade and, and imports and exports. And then you had the Madisons and the Jeffersons of the world who, from their own experience, I think, I feel, you know, colored mm-hmm. what they thought was going to be the future of the country. It's not going to be manufacturing. We don't need to make anything. We'll just, we know, we'll just cultivate all of our, our farmland. And again, you got to give Alexander Hamilton some props in in understanding that that's actually, you need a little bit of both. And, and really, mm. you needed to lean into this new manufacturing because it was so new, right? The country had been a, a country of, of a lot of farmers, very minimal manufacturing. Uh, and, you know, him understanding that we need to cultivate this, we need to develop this because this is going to be the future. This is how we're going to be a player on the world stage. Again, super visionary. So um, again, more props to him. Absolutely. And and that's the thing. I, I think it really gets to, he could see the nation that could be, mm-hmm. whereas so many were focused on where the is. nation was, yep. what these colonies, these previous colonies had been, but he sees this vision. And so finally, the bills go through Congress. They actually, they pass, they go to Washington for a signature. And at this point, Jefferson and others go to the president and say, this is wrong. You've got to veto this. You, you cannot sign these bills. Washington ended up signing them. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that, and, and I think one thing that I don't think always gets as much attention, because yes, you know, Hamilton, this was definitely Hamilton's vision, but he also had to have that trust from Washington. Yeah. And there line of thinking on it. Uh, No, George Washington, I don't think could have come up with this intricate plan, but the underlying vision Mm -hmm. of a stronger national economy of a a federal government that had more economic power, that was very much in line with Washington's thinking as well. And so they realized that this was key to building a stable government to helping support the economy. And so there was no way Washington was going to let this go. And so he signs Hamilton's plan goes into play, but in this, we start to see the factions growing Yeah, and you know, not just in the nation, but in Washington's cabinet. And so you really start to see this divide between Hamilton as Secretary of the Treasury and Jefferson as Secretary of State and the other cabinet members, you know, Secretary of War Henry Knox kind of falls into line under Hamilton. The Attorney General Edmund Randolph tends to side with Jefferson more. Um, he has some some rebellious streaks, but <laughs> you know, by and large, he he sees more along the lines of Jefferson. And I, I think it gets back to that regionalism because mm-hmm. both of them were from Virginia. So part of the friction comes from Hamilton not really being content with just managing the Treasury Department's affairs, but he starts to have some ideas about uh, diplomacy, uh, (laughs) war. He's got a lot um, of opinions. (laughs) You know, just let's let's go ahead and... and, and Poke the bears. (laughs) Yeah. Let's go ahead and get involved in everything. 
And so, um, so again, like with Jefferson, this kind of wrangles him because he's like, you know, do your job. I'm not coming to run the treasury department for you. Right. Stop telling me what I need to do. But of course, Hamilton keeps on. Hamilton also was not necessarily content with just making his arguments in the privacy of cabinet meetings or letters to the president. He went ahead and wrote essays to support his ideas, as well as to sometimes attack his political opponents. Now, with the convention of the time, of course, he used pseudonyms, but there was some awareness of this is Hamilton attacking. And even though this was a a common practice with politicians at the time, Jefferson didn't respond directly. Jefferson was not one to write essays under pseudonyms and have them published. He hired other people to do it for him. (laughs) He hired other people, including um, Philip Freneau, who he hired as a translator at the State Department. So he was on the, the salary for, you know, at the State Department which helped to fund his starting the pro Jefferson paper, the national Gazette, which is Um, so bizarre to me. I know like it's, it's, it's a tangent and I apologize, but how, how do you square that in your mind, Jefferson? Oh, I'm going to pay you so that you have the money to start a newspaper that is solely purposed to criticize the institution with which you work. Like I, what, what conflict of interest guy, Oh, Jefferson and Fury. Just a little one. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and that's the thing. Like you really, th- this is a, it, it's such a fascinating time in history, but there's so much about it. And, and that's one for me as well. It's like, this just, this doesn't make sense. Yeah. <laughs> but. And you don't see go. anything wrong with this at all. You know, I just, you, oh. But but you're you're gonna get on your high horse for everything else, mm-hmm. but this is okay. Yeah. All right. So these conflicts they continue, and as the nation is starting to feel the pressure, because at this point the French Revolution had happened, and there started to be a debate here. Well, what does this French Revolution mean? Oh my gosh, they're beheading people. <laughs> What is going on over there? And you have some folks, the Jefferson crowd, that are like, "Well, you know, it's, it's not that bad. It's not really that bad. We need, we need that revolution. A little blood can nourish the tree of liberty." <laughs> uh, I, I forget exactly how the quote goes, but something along those lines. But the U.S. is starting to face pressure because it ends up revolutionary France ends up in war with Great Britain. And these are our two largest trading partners. And oh, by the way, we have these treaties with France that say if they go to war, we're going to join in with them. Yeah. Awkward. And <laughs> and so you end up in this awkward place because we're like, well, we really don't have much of an army. We don't have a navy. We're just getting started. We don't want to cut off trade with Britain. And also, so what do we do? The government keeps changing in France every fifteen minutes. So, do we really have to do our treaties? <laughs> exactly. And this kind of comes ahead when a new uh, French minister shows up, Edmond Charles Genet. He was described as by the U.S. minister to France at the time as having quote more of genius than of ability, 
and you will see in him at the first blush the manner and look of an upstart. <laughs> so not necessarily a flattering yeah. <laughs> description, but Janae sails into Charleston and he goes by land from there up to the capital, Philadelphia, and he you know, folks are just throwing parties. They're praising him. Oh, this is our, our new friend from France. And of course he's full of revolutionary fervor. You know, we've got so much in common. We had our revolution. You had yours. The problem is Genet starts to recruit American citizens to attack the British. He also works to get armed ships ready to sail from American ports to attack the British on the high seas. This is going to put us in an awkward position with the British. They're not going to like this. And so naturally, the Washington administration is worried that this is going to pull us into the war on the side of France, even though we we haven't really decided or we just don't want to talk about that. And of course, Hamilton has an opinion on this, and he saw... There's much more benefit in remaining on friendly terms with Britain. And so he starts to argue to Washington. He's like, look, this Genet character, he's got to go. This is, this is not good. He also argues in terms of the treaties. He's like, well, so let's look at this. We made these treaties with the king of France. The king of France no longer has a head. <laughs> And there is no King of France. So this is really a new nation. We're not really, it's not the same France. So we really shouldn't be held to those treaties. And it ends up, you know, and when Genet first got to Philadelphia, Jefferson, like so many, was, oh, he's great. Oh, this is wonderful. Let's throw a party in your honor. And he quickly starts to realize, okay, this guy is kind of arrogant, and he's really trying to bring us into war. I don't really like war, and it's probably not a good idea. And so eventually, even Jefferson turns on him, and Washington does agree to demand Janae's recall. And this is just such a pivotal point, because Washington issues the Neutrality Proclamation, and this is kind of with, you know, Hamilton really helps to spur him towards this. You know, we don't need to get involved in this. Let's just go ahead and say, we're staying out of this one. We're trading with everybody. Oh, by the way, U.S. citizens do not get involved in this conflict. Yep. Read, do not get involved in this <laughs> conflict. And so increasingly... Jefferson seeing that Hamilton is having a, a large amount of influence on Washington and his thinking. And he finally says, you know what? I'm throwing my hands up. I, I, I'm gone. So Jefferson leaves the cabinet and the cabinet and the administration really starts a turn more towards the Federalist point of view. It was already working towards there, but after Jefferson leaves and there's no longer that strong voice for this, you know, Democratic Republican ideal, this Jeffersonian ideal, you really start to see a turn in the administration and Hamilton's influence grows. Mm -hmm. 
And so we even start to see this in the Jay Treaty. So even though we want to remain on good terms with the British, we've still got some issues to work out. You know, the Treaty of Paris didn't solve everything. We've still got British troops in the Northwest Territory. They haven't vacated those forts that they promised they would. We've got all these issues. And so eventually Washington sees and and is convinced that we need to send a special envoy. And so he chose the Supreme Court Chief Justice John Jay for the task, which is also one of those fascinating points of this, this, uh, the early republic, that the Chief Justice of of the Supreme Court is sent on a diplomatic mission and is gone for months and months. It really gives you a sense of just how little the Supreme Court had to do at the time. Oh, yeah. It was very, very uh, unimportant until a couple of years later. <laughs> yeah. But at this point, so, you know, Jefferson had left the cabinet and there and um, Edmund Randolph, who had been the attorney general, had become the second secretary of state. But he didn't he had an influence with Washington, of course, fellow Virginians. Randolph was somebody that that he could he could relate to. But in terms of Hamilton, you know, Jefferson was able to fend off some of Hamilton sticking his nose into the affairs of state, Randolph doesn't have quite as much gravitas and and ability to do that. And so you even see like with Jay's instructions, they were largely written by Hamilton. Mm -hmm. And so he has this increasing influence over the administration. We don't really have time to go into the ins and outs of the negotiation of the Jay Treaty, but the treaty would go through when it came back. The Jefferson crowd was just like, what is this? <laughs> we basically gave the British whatever they wanted. And and that's an oversimplification. You know, there there were things that were achieved by the Jay Treaty. And most importantly, it kept us from going to war with Britain at a time that we didn't have much of an army. We didn't have a navy. Still trying to get our finances in order. We could not afford to go to war. So it keeps us out of war with Britain. But the French look at this treaty and they kind of see it along the same lines as Jefferson and Madison. You really just kind of gave in to them. And oh, by the way, you give them extra rights that we don't have. So this starts to cause a rift, and it ultimately leads to the quasi-war in the presidency of John Adams. But I did want to mention this in terms of Hamilton's influence over those instructions and in ultimately the Jay Treaty being ratified, mm-hmm. Washington agreeing to sign it. You know, Hamilton, he, he was like, this needs to happen. You know, there this and here are the arguments why. Again, Hamilton would just write up a report. He'd spend all night, a couple of days writing this report, detailed and making the argument. And it it held the day. You know, he he was an influence in this. Now, even though Hamilton was very busy and was involved in so much in terms of governance, in terms of politics. He still managed to find time to have an affair. (laughs) So Hamilton was this lightning rod. 
You know, he, he, like you said, he had times that he just rubbed people the wrong way. Mm-hmm. And so he was constantly being accused of using his position for financial benefit for himself. There are numerous calls for investigation. And so finally, William Branch Giles was able to push through a bill to investigate Hamilton. And it did find that he did shift some government funds that had been earmarked by Congress towards relieving the national debt for other purposes. That was really all the dirt that they could find (laughs) on him, which this did lead to a little bit of a rift between him and Washington because Hamilton said, oh, no, Washington said it was okay. And Washington was like, um, "What? when did I say that? <laughs> I, I don't remember that conversation. And Hamilton would basically be like, well, you know, you're, you're getting on up in years. Well, you don't remember that conversation. <laughs> He's like the master of the loophole, I swear. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, you didn't tell and, me I couldn't do it. So silence breeds yeah. consent, right? <laughs> you'd say it was okay you know (laughs) so this starts to cause like a little rift with them but uh, you know by and large these investigations just it it never really amounted to much of anything because you know for everything that folks could argue against alexander hamilton he did try and keep that divide you know this is the public business and this is my personal life he wasn't gonna you know take public funds even though that has been done in since time immemorial. Yes. It, it, you know, it's it's something that's happened over the the annals of history. By and large, he was very efficient and and ethical about how he approached the work at the Treasury. Yeah, but of course, the investigations continued and the allegations continued, and it ended up that Representative Frederick Mullenberg of Pennsylvania was approached by someone in late 1792 who said he had some damaging information about Hamilton. He finally, you know, and, and he kind of hem-hawed around, you know, oh, well, I've got some information. I don't know if I want to tell you. And so finally he said that um, Hamilton had conspired on a speculation scheme with a man named James Reynolds. And Mullenberg was like, okay, we we need to look into this. And so he pulls in Senator James Monroe and Representative Abraham Venable, both of whom were from Virginia, to investigate this. Let's see what we can find. So the informant ended up providing some letters that Hamilton had written to Reynolds. And the two were like, okay, well, let's let's start with Reynolds. So Reynolds was actually in jail at the time, so it was easy to find him. (laughs) (laughs) So they went to talk with him, you know, what's going on? And Reynolds asserted that, quote, he had a person in high office in his power and has had a long time past. And so they're like, he's talking about Hamilton. <laughs> oh, my gosh, this this is real. Yeah. They also visited with Reynolds's wife, Maria Reynolds. Um, she confirmed that her husband and Hamilton had business dealings in the past. And so, you know, at this point, Reynolds was about to be released from jail. And so they were like, well, once you're out, come and talk to us. Let's figure things out. He had arranged a meeting, but he never showed up. Reynolds was released from jail and hightailed it. And so they're like, okay, well, the only person that we have left to talk to is Hamilton. So the three go to Hamilton and Hamilton is like, okay, I want a witness. So he pulls in the comptroller of the treasury, Oliver Walcott Jr., 
and he reveals that he had an extramarital affair with Maria Reynolds. And beyond that, James Reynolds had caught them, and he did an extortion scheme on Hamilton to keep quiet about the matter, as well as to let him continue to see Maria. (laughs) So weird. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. Pay me and you can keep stooping my wife. I'm like, oh my God. (laughs) Awkward. Really? (laughs) Oh my gosh. What does that say about your marriage? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, Hamilton was like, look, you know, it's not anything. It's my own personal funds. I didn't do anything wrong. With. This is all personal. Yeah. And he even provided them with letters to confirm the story. And and again, you know, he was able to prove that these were personal funds, not government funds. And they're like, okay, well, this is this isn't good, but you know, we'll keep quiet about this. That's that's your business. Okay. Mm-hmm. But they had copies of the documents about the affair in their possession. And we'll talk about that shortly. Because those will show up again <laughs> later in Hamilton's story. But yeah, so we've got that going on. And then we get back to that excise tax on whiskey and the Whiskey Rebellion. And I know you did an episode on the Whiskey Rebellion. Oh, yeah. So. Oh, yeah. Uh, poor guy. Um, you know, I, I think, again, his his thought process was was pretty sound, right? You know, you don't have to drink whiskey. You don't have to buy whiskey. But I think what perhaps he didn't realize was how much of a staple it was for, you know, the basic farmer and to, you know, it was their livelihood. And so for for them, it was you know, you're taxing me out of being able to put food on my table. And, you know, I just, I find the irony that it was Pennsylvania that got, you know, got all up in arms. I'm like, why is it, why is it always Pennsylvania? (laughs) Always in Pennsylvania. (laughs) Well, exactly. And, and that really gets to, and, and for all of his vision and understanding of the grand schema of things, you really see a disconnect mm-hmm. here that he didn't understand. That was how the the folks in the West, that was how their economy worked. They didn't have Manufacturing. Specie. They didn't have big yeah. farms. Yeah. So they had to do other means of, of production. Yeah. And and this was a way for them to be able to have, you know, it, it was key to their economy. And so when the excise taxes started, it created an extreme burden on them. And so naturally folks were upset, you know, this was hitting them disproportionately hard and they're like, you know what? We're Americans. (laughs) What do we do when we don't want to pay taxes? (laughs) We revolt. (laughs) We revolt. We're going to start attacking the tax collectors. And, you know, then word gets back to Philadelphia and to the administration. And they're like, they're doing what? They're attacking tax collectors. The, what? what what's their problem? <laughs> WTH, man. And so at first, you know, the administration's like, well, maybe this can be worked out. Maybe we can send some folks to talk to them. But also not going to necessarily rely on that. Let's go ahead. We've got this new militia act that was passed. We can get some state militias together just in case we need, you know, we're not going to have another Shays Rebellion here. So it ended up the peaceful resolution that didn't work. And so 
Washington puts and, and the administration puts together a force of 13,000 to march to Western Pennsylvania to restore order. And so Washington was at the head of it. But the problem was with this, the Secretary of War, who you would think would be right, right in the middle of all this, was out of town. Yeah. Um, and we'll talk about that, you know, more when we get to Knox's episode. But he was handling personal business. Washington asked him to come back, kept waiting, sent him another note. No, really, this is an important thing. I need you here right now. When are you coming? Silence. Didn't show up. And so finally, Washington was like, forget it. I need somebody I can trust. Mm -hmm. Hamilton, (laughs) you like to do everything. Pretty much everything. (laughs) Why don't you take charge of the, the War Department? Make sure that we have everything arranged. And, you know, you can ride out with me. And so... Washington and Hamilton ride out from Philadelphia and ride to Western uh, Pennsylvania. Now, and, and, and this is, you know, we don't think of the presidency like this, you know, at, at the head of troops. Right. But Washington knew, you know, the image of him being at the head of this force, they would think twice about it. Yep. And that's what happened. It just fizzled out when they realized, oh, He's not playing. Washington is coming. Yeah. He's not played. <laughs> He's got a lot of troops with him. Um, we, we've just got like some pitchforks and, you know, I, I, I think Joe has a gun, but <laughs> you know, I, I don't think we're going to last with this. Yep. And, and so, you know, by the time they get there, everything's pretty much said and done. And so Washington's like, okay, I don't need to be here. Hamilton deal with this. Yep. And so, this starts to cause an uproar in the pro Jefferson, the Democratic Republican faction, because they're like, this is the Secretary of the Treasury who you just handed an army. Mm-hmm. This isn't good. Also, you know, Washington, when he left, he directed Hamilton to, quote, maintain the highest standards of legality. Hamilton instead. <laughs> Authorized the impressment of civilian property in order to supply the troops because winter was coming. So his troops were taken care of, but the citizens of the area suffered. Yep. And, it, it, you know, it, many of these folks had not been involved in the Whiskey Rebellion. They were just citizens just trying to live their lives. And Collateral here damage, the federal, unfortunately, yeah, yeah. here the federal government is you know taking their stuff, which is exactly what Jefferson and Madison had been saying all along that this is what would happen when you had a, an army and a strong government. Hamilton also authorized the arrest and interrogation of numerous folks suspected of being part of the rebellion. And and I wanted to read this description here of one of the the tensions because I think this is important, especially when we get to the scoring part of this. I think this will need to be taken into consideration. Quote, For more than two days, the general in charge of prisoners starved and dehydrated his shivering, exhausted captives, steadily cursing and castigating them, glorying in their helplessness and describing their imminent hanging. Even the general's troops became concerned about the captives, who seemed barely alive when the general finally decided to move them out. He quick marched them 12 miles through bad weather to the town of Washington, not Washington, (laughs) D.C., Washington, Pennsylvania, 
where in physical and emotional collapse, they were held in jail without charge, ready for questioning. Now, the general being referred to here, I I haven't seen an indication that this was Hamilton, but it was under his command. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have we have folks who are you know being detained, abysmal conditions, torture, basically, um, I mean, torture. Yeah, that's a problem. And Hamilton didn't stop there. Yeah. Um, he tried unsuccessfully to get evidence to arrest Democratic Republicans and even congressional members from Pennsylvania, including Senator Albert Gallatin, who will eventually become a successor of Hamilton at the Treasury Department. And and, and even though he wasn't able to get this evidence, he wasn't able to arrest them. He still tried. Yeah, He's using his authority. the military and... And this authority to for go political after, gain. Exactly. To go after his political enemies. It's a little bit of a misstep, Fine. sir. <laughs> yes. It, this is, and, and this is it, a demonstration of what folks, when they had argued against Hamilton and argued against his ideas, and then they see this and they're like, see, we have been telling you this guy is dangerous. Mm-hmm. He's showing what he would do with authority. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think, too, this is another example of his need to prove himself and to to exert his influence and to prove that he's capable. And, you know, which led to a self-sabotage, right? Because you you completely went against what, you know, supposedly the country is, is founded on and 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 you did that for no other purpose than to seek revenge against your political enemies and it's you know that's that's a, a bad thing there hamilton yes and so you know he he does finally call things off he returns back to philadelphia the the troops are disbanded but to your point you know this is now people are looking at this and you know, his, his reputation is starting to go down. You know, folks really are thinking this guy is dangerous. Now, after this, he goes back to Philadelphia soon after his wife, Eliza had had a miscarriage. He's been working feverishly at the treasury department and anywhere else he could work (laughs) for the last few years. And so he finally starts to think maybe, Maybe it's it's time. I need to spend time with my family. I need to get some things sorted out. And so he turns in his resignation to Washington on December 1st, 1794. He submits one more report to Congress about the national debt. And then he finally leaves office on January 31st, 1795. So after he leaves the cabinet and leaves the administration, he goes back to his private law practice but of course, this is Hamilton. He's not getting out of politics. <laughs> he continues to write essays published under pseudonyms in support of federalist policies and efforts. He really wants to be kind of this power behind the scenes of, of helping to guide um, federalists to power yeah. and, and this federalist agenda. He's also not done with helping Washington because Washington decides to retire at the end of his second term. And he turns to Hamilton and he's like, I need to draft a farewell address. So, you know, can you help me out with that? You've helped me compose things so many times in the past. So Hamilton's involved in that. But meanwhile, you know, now that he knows, okay, 
Washington really is leaving. Well, Hamilton's got some ideas about the election mm-hmm. and who should be the president. So, and this wasn't the first time that Hamilton kind of interfered with the presidential election process. In the first election, so it was kind of stretched over 1788, 1789, Hamilton worked with other leaders and and the electors to make sure to divert votes from Adams because even at this early stage, he realized, okay, so this electoral college thing that we've got going, each elector casts two votes and the top vote getter becomes president. The second highest becomes vice president. But what happens if there's a tie? Mm-hmm. And especially with Washington, you don't want George Washington to end up in a tie with John Adams. Right. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so Hamilton goes ahead and interferes with that. He makes sure that Adams doesn't get as many votes. And Adams hears about this. <laughs> and he's none too pleased. He's like, well, you know. What the heck, man? Why? <laughs> you know, couldn't you have given me a few more votes at least? You know, just throw off one or something. Or maybe I could be president of the United States. Who knows? But, you know, this is kind of the the beginning of Adams approaching Hamilton kind of warily and he he takes it personally. And so 1796 rolls around and Adams is seen as kind of being, okay, he's been vice president for both of the terms. He's probably the one who should step in as president. Well, Hamilton has some other ideas. <laughs> he works to have Northern electors vote for Adams and Thomas Pinckney of South Carolina. Basically, he's like, okay, these are the two votes that you need to put in. Then he goes to the Southern electors and he's like, well, why don't y'all vote for Thomas Pinckney and Jefferson? And basically, he he wants to cut Adams and Jefferson out and end up with Thomas Pinckney as president because he felt, well, I I can... I can deal with Pinckney, you know, I, I can, he can manipulate sure he Pinckney is what he thought. <laughs> exactly. Maybe a little easier than Washington. You know, he's Thomas Pinckney. Who knows? Exactly. Who knows Thomas Pinckney? He's, he's no Washington. Of course, this didn't work. Northern Federalists found out about the scheme and voted for Adams, but not Pinckney. And so Pinckney came in third. And as we know, 1796, the most um, awkward election result in history. <laughs> Adams becomes president and Jefferson becomes vice president, even though they are from completely different factions. And yeah, approach, there's that. Approach governing from two completely <laughs> different political ideologies. Um, yeah. Thanks, yeah. Hamilton. <laughs> Thanks a lot. That worked out so well. <laughs> Which, of course, you know, we will be talking about the 1800 presidential election and Hamilton's interference in that in a minute. But before we get to that, let's turn back to the Reynolds affair. So, again, those three congressmen had the copies of the letters that talked about his affairs. And in the summer of 1797, so um, John Adams had just become president, and James Callender, who was a rather infamous scandal mongering journalist calendar would eventually be the person to reveal uh, Jefferson's sexual relationship with Sally Hemings. 
But before he did that, he published accusations of James Reynolds being Hamilton's agent based on documents that had come out of that investigation. So that informal investigation with the three, somehow, somehow, Calendar ended up with some of those documents and started writing about Hamilton, but it was really taking it in more, again, attacking him professionally. Right. Hamilton would eventually blame James Monroe for the leak. We don't necessarily know for certain, but Monroe is a possible culprit. So this starts coming out. And again, you know, with Hamilton and this, you know, wanting to make sure that his public image is, you know, his pride, his, his honor is preserved. Hamilton kind of has a think and he makes an interesting choice. (laughs) He goes to work. He, you know, burns the midnight oil. And soon after a hundred page pamphlet is released where he reveals his affair with Maria Reynolds and in that he provides rather a bit of detail about um, the affair. But basically, just like he did with the congressman, he explains, you know, this was a completely personal thing. No government funds were used. He has the documentation to prove it. But it's not a good look. Mm-hmm. I mean, here you are admitting that you Cheated were involved in an extramarital affair. You cheated on your wife with another married woman. And then continue to pay for it so that you could continue the relationship. I mean, that's really awkward. And the one thing I've never really, you know, and to be fair, I'm not a a 100% knowledgeable on Alexander Hamilton. I, you know, I I know him through my my studies of of the presidencies and the cabinets and stuff. But one thing that I never really kind of understood is, number one, why did you have to go through so much detail? Number two, did you do this thinking that this would somehow like repair your reputation to be president someday? Like, I I don't understand. And I I guess, again, I think it's maybe just his nature in self-sabotage is that he just couldn't help himself. He had to make sure that he restored his honor for his public life, but not really understanding that you know, your public and your private life, especially when you're in the public sector, they're always intertwined, right? So it, mm-hmm. yeah, maybe you didn't misuse public funds, but you also lied to your wife. So if you lied to your wife, why would we ever trust you again in any kind of public capacity? And I, I, I don't know that he didn't think about that because he was so singularly focused. And also I feel terrible for his wife, Eliza, like that's, that's part of the historical public record. Everybody will now know that forever. Well, and especially, I mean, this was a pamphlet that, of course, everybody heard about, you know, in in the, the prominent circles that they would be circulating with and, and friends with folks. And it's like everybody knows their dirty laundry. And I can only imagine what Eliza was going through and the conversations she had to have. And, oh, by the way, their children probably Mm-hmm. And, and again, like, you know, we, this isn't anything new. We've had scandals like this, personal scandals throughout American history and, and 20th, 21st century. But it, it really does get to, and, and to your point, like, why did you choose to, 
handle it that way. This way. Yeah. I mean, no, you, you probably didn't need to do a cover up, but this just. You didn't need to go to so much this, detail. You could just say, I yeah. made a personal failing and I, you know, in order to do this, I made even a more stupider mistake in, in deciding to continue to pay to continue the relationship. And for that, I'm forever sorry. However, I did not use, I did not misuse public funds. Like leave it at that. But of course, you know, he has to go a hundred pages into, you know, super details. And again, just awkward. <laughs> very, very awkward. So, you know, and, and and one of the things that, that you mentioned, you know, what was his aim? Was he really wanting to get into public life again? Well, soon after, we end up in the quasi-war, so not necessarily at war with France. It seems to be going towards war. We're having some battles, you know, some naval battles between the U.S. and France, and so... President Adams pushes far, Congress approves an enlargement of the army, new generalships, and at a time when you wanted the nation to come together, at that point, who do you call George Washington? Mm -hmm. Everybody loves Washington. Everybody can rally around Washington. So Washington is made commander-in-chief of the army once more, and they create three new general positions to serve as like his direct subordinates. But in that, there's kind of a ranking. So there's the second in command, third and fourth. Now, in terms of the officer rankings, Henry Knox was, should have been second in command. Charles Coatsworth Pinckney should have been third. And then Hamilton, because of course, Washington was going to draft Hamilton into this. He should have been fourth. Well, Washington said, no, I don't know that I trust Knox and Pinckney. I can trust Hamilton. He's my second in command. He's my right hand guy. President Adams, <laughs> of course, was not too keen on that. Knox and Pinckney had a few words about it as well. But Washington had the ultimate card to play. Do you really want me as commander in chief <laughs> of the army? These are my conditions. I can <laughs> I can go home right now and not bother with any of this, or you can give me what I want, and Hamilton is my second in command. So finally, Adams relents. Okay, whatever. So Hamilton is made the senior major general, as well as inspector general of the army. So, you know, I said, yeah, Washington could say, oh, I'm going to go home. Well, he didn't really leave his home even when he accepted the <laughs> commander-in-chief position. He was like, well, you know, if we really end up at war, I'll leave. I'll, I'll go and, and head the army. You don't really need me to run things. Hamilton, he knows how to do that. Let Hamilton do it. <laughs> so Hamilton becomes the de facto head of the army, which, of course, did not please President Adams. It didn't please a few folks. Meanwhile, you know, because of course it's Hamilton and he can't just keep himself to military matters. He starts, you know, he, he's formed relationships and has correspondence with pretty much all the cabinet members, in particular, the ones that Adams inherited from Washington and that they've had some friction with the president. 
And he kind of helps to encourage some of that friction. Oh, no, you know, Adams doesn't really know what he's doing. Here's what you need to do. Um, He sticks his nose into that, too. And word, of course, gets back to Adams. And he's like, look, this what is up with this dude? Why is why can't he just leave things alone? I don't need him interfering in this. And Adams ultimately, he's like, he gets fed up with it. He's like, these folks are not loyal to me, even though they're in my cabinet. They'll do whatever Hamilton says. I can't get him to do anything. So he ends up firing Secretary of State Pickering and Secretary of War McHenry because he just can't trust them. Ultimately, war was not declared. Uh, We were able to resolve our issues with France. And so... The army was disbanded. Hamilton, even though, of course, he wanted some more military glory, was denied that again. It was just, you know, managing affairs and trying to get the troops together, but he never got a chance at battle again. So that leads us to the 1800 presidential election. And yet another, (laughs) yet another why did you think this was a good idea, Hamilton? <laughs> um, so at this point, you know, after all of this, after the Reynolds affair, after the Whiskey Rebellion, after his financial plans, all that, you know, all the discord that he had sown over the years, his political influence is starting to wane. But that doesn't stop Hamilton. So at this point, the state legislature of New York chose the electors for the state. So the focus by Democratic Republicans in the state and Aaron Burr kind of helped to lead that effort was to win the state legislative elections that spring, because then they would be able to choose electors that would vote for Jefferson and Burr. Well, they won. Democratic Republicans took the state legislature and thus New York's electoral votes were going towards Jefferson and Burr. Hamilton decided to write to the Federalist governor, John Jay, his former collaborator, if we can call five essays a collaboration. (laughs) He wrote to John Jay about a plan to rework the electoral process in such a way that would allow Federalists to at least get some electoral votes. You know, it wouldn't be a complete sweep for Jefferson and and Burr. Jay said no. He's like, no, we We things were done fair and square. We, we've committed, you know, it's, it's theirs. Sorry. Then Hamilton gets the bright idea of writing yet another pamphlet. <laughs> In this lengthy pamphlet, he basically goes into every reason why John Adams is awful. He's not good at this. He doesn't know this. It's just, it, it is basically page after page of how awful of a president he's been. And then at the end, he says, well, I guess we should vote for him again. I, I mean, well, and again, <laughs> his whole excuse once it became public, right, was that it was just supposed to be for Federalists. And, I, and I'm just, Hamilton, come on, man. First of all, first of all, if your choices were Thomas Jefferson, whom you hated, Aaron Burr, who was your frenemy, and John Adams, like, why would you even bother to put paper to pen or quill to parchment and write this long diatribe about criticizing the administration. You're, you're 
basically doing the same thing that Thomas Jefferson did, albeit a little bit more bluntly, and in the four, if there, if the ultimate conclusion was, well, let's just, he's imperfect, as every president is, but let's go ahead and, and continue to vote for him. You know, you, you tailor-made an ad, I know ads weren't a thing just yet, but you tailor-made an ad against the sitting president. I, I just, his where he was thinking i don't understand and then also like who do you think you are to be like oh this is all the reasons why he's terrible but you know what go ahead and take my word for it and go ahead and vote for him anyways it's just the brass on that guy well and that's the thing you know it's like you know of course that didn't work you know everybody just read the pamphlet and they were like oh Adams really is awful. I guess we shouldn't vote for him. And they can see that little tack on at the end. Oh, I, you really should vote for him. Uh, a little PS, uh, you know, and, and Adams, of course, you know, he reads this and he's like, this guy, what in the world? And Adams, you know, after that, and after the election, and I mean, even 20-something years later, he's still, like, even after, and, and I, I think we all know kind of what's coming, yes. even after Hamilton was no longer with us, Adams was still like, well, I'm not going to say that he was great. He was a jerk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he, oh, he was so still, and, and here's why. <laughs> He wants to talk about my fault. I will talk about his. (laughs) So the election ends up and it, it proves Hamilton's point with the, the first election, the 1788, 1789, because Jefferson and Burr, so their electors vote for both of them. And so they end up tied. It gets thrown to Congress, to the house to decide. And Hamilton again, decides to interfere, but I think possibly justified. He writes to Federalists in Congress and he's like, look, you know me. I don't like Thomas Jefferson. Aaron Burr is dangerous. Do not vote for him. And at the time, Federalists were kind of rallying around Burr. They thought, oh, well, you know, Jefferson is awful. We can't trust him. Maybe we can work with Burr. And Burr, of course, opportunistic. Sure, yeah, I can work I'm with anybody. Sure, anything. vote for whomever you and, think. And and so the Federalists, you know, they even though they're getting these letters from Hamilton saying don't vote for Burr, they keep on voting for him, and it finally takes thirty six ballots before Jefferson wins the presidency. And again, this is one of those points that you really start to see Hamilton is no longer in charge mm-hmm. of the Federalists. He's no longer in charge of the party. He he doesn't have that influence that he once had when he could just, you know, put out an essay or write somebody, have a conversation and make things happen. It's just not happening anymore. And so, you know, Jefferson becomes president. Hamilton continues to practice law. He continues writing his essays because nothing's going to stop Hamilton Mm -hmm. from putting in his two cents. But his political influence just keeps on that decline, but he does have an important uh, contribution because he founds the New York evening post in 1801 and the evening post would continue on for a good long while would become an influential paper and Hamilton was involved in its founding. 
But this time in Hamilton's life is also one marked with more tragedy. You know, we, mm-hmm. we saw at the beginning of his life tragedy and his oldest son, Philip, dies in a duel in 1801 at the age of 19. This was a devastating loss to Hamilton. You know, this was his his oldest son and it was just devastating to him you you read some of his writings at the time and and you you hear descriptions of him and it was clear that he was suffering from you know depression mm-hmm. he he grief was real you know, it it was he was consumed by grief so alexander and eliza had their last child in 1802 and they decided to name him philip after his brother which, of course, you know, for historians and genealogists, that always gets interesting. It's like, <laughs> which Philip Hamilton are we talking about? But anyway, so then we get to 1804, and New York has its gubernatorial election. And again, you have Aaron Burr coming in. He was actually running with Federalist support. You know, at this point, he had been vice president for the, the first part, you know, Jefferson's first term. But it was pretty clear that he wasn't going to be on the ticket again. And so he decided, well, I'm going to run for governor. Federalists supported me before. I'm not really going to get support from the Jefferson crowd. Let's go ahead and run with that Federalist support. I'll take any support, but they seem to be really behind me. Meanwhile, the Democratic Republicans come up with this candidate, Morgan Lewis. And it's kind of a, you know, when when they announce, oh, Lewis is our candidate. What? <laughs> who? He's he's just not really this. He, he's not somebody who's really going to get folks energized. And so Hamilton is just sitting there and he's like, what is going on here? Why? You know, I definitely don't support Burr. Why did you choose Lewis? There are better candidates. But he eventually throws his support behind Lewis. And... I don't think it, we can really say it was because of Hamilton's support that he won, but Lewis did end up winning the governorship. And shortly after this, um, some letters were published. Apparently, Hamilton, during the election, had attended a dinner party, and he was said to have spoken ill of Burr. Now, this account was rather vague, but when Burr read it, when it was published, he was like, this is a personal attack on me. This is about, this is an attack on my honor. And at this point, you know, Burr had, was leaving the vice presidency. He, he was, he didn't even receive a vote for him to be back on the ticket. He lost the gubernatorial election that he thought was, he was a shoe in for. He's not in the best of places and he's rather sensitive at this point. You know, he's looking for anything and he sees this and he's like, okay, Hamilton, what's up? What's your beef with me? Well, and also it was such a a thing of the time, right? You know, you don't go after Mm -hmm. the man's honor because that could lead to dueling and, um, you know, extreme violence. So the fact that Hamilton just kept poking the bear again, this self-sabotage. And of course it has a, you know, a a tragic result in in this example, but yeah, it was, I, that was one of the things I, one of the many things about him that I I didn't understand. It's, you know, you can have your opinions, but why do you have to keep 
nitpicking at this man. Um, let him do his thing and let him fail on his own. But, you know, he thought he knew best. So, of course. <laughs> and like you said, you know, this ends up and, and it really, you know, you've got these affairs of honor, you know, and, and most of the time they were able to work things out. Um, they exchanged some letters. Their seconds were trying to work things out. Didn't work. And so we end up at dawn on July 11th, 1804 at the dueling ground in Weehawken, New Jersey. And Hamilton threw away his shot. Burr didn't. Yeah. Of course, there ended up a debate afterwards about who shot first, which that was also rather interesting because Burr's argument, it puts him in his in a worse light. Right. But, you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> um, the fact of the matter is Hamilton shot. He's taken back across the Hudson River to New York. He's brought to his friend William Bayard's home. And basically, they start going through the city, finding his friends, his family, bringing them there. And everybody realizes this is this is it. Yeah. Hamilton is not surviving this. And so the following afternoon... He died at the age of either 47 or 49 because of that uncertainty about the year of his birth, but, you know, late 40s. Despite Hamilton's affair, and, and again, like, you know, as we were talking about, you know, what Eliza was going through and, and what she thought of things, despite that, despite that, I mean, public humiliation, airing and humiliation, she would remain devoted to him and she would spend the rest of her life. And, and she lived a good long while after him to preserve Hamilton's legacy. And, you know, um, scholars and historians look at her work and really do credit her with helping to push this idea of Hamilton and his influence and his importance to American history. You know, you, she really devoted the rest of her life to that. Um, that was key to her. And so, you know, it's an interesting legacy for him that, you know, the person who had every reason to not trust him, to dismiss him, to just be ready to be done with him, devoted the rest of her life to him, to his legacy, to his name, mm-hmm. To his honor. Yeah. So. Yeah. She, well, you know, for me, um, what amazes me about her is despite going through that whole public humiliation and despite the, you know, the loss of her husband with very young children. And she, I think, understood him on a level that I don't think anyone else did. And um, I, of course, appreciate the fact that she was a female historian trying to preserve a legacy and trying to, you know, make sure that he didn't fall off the cliffs of of history. Um, so I always appreciate that about her. But yeah, it's it's amazing to me that she remained so committed to not only ensuring that he was known for his legacy and for what he's, what he's done, but that she preserved the, the impact really that he had to the formation of the government and, and his place in history. So uh, props to, to Eliza for sure. Yeah. 
And I think that's a perfect segue, you know, talking about his legacy to getting to the ranking portion of this program. All right. Um, so <laughs> basically, we're going to go through a, a few categories and then we will um, have a final total. We'll be ranking on a scale of zero to 10 and we will both give him a ranking. We'll add that to the total and go from there. And then at the end, we will have a a question of whether he is in the cabinet all stars, mm -hmm. whether he, he really has that legacy. But to start us off, let's start with the whole picture category. Now this round looks at the overall career and character of this cabinet member. So just, you know, in his overall legacy and his statesmanship, what are your thoughts? So <clears throat> I'm not a personal fan of Hamilton's. He, you know, he's uh, somebody who I'm always like, what were you thinking, man? But I, I can, I can see why, right? While I, while I don't necessarily res respect the, the way that he decided to, to do his career, I can understand the reasons behind it. And despite my displeasure with some of the things that he did, I, I think his impact can't be diminished. It can't be uh, derided. He, you know, a lot of the things that he established still exist to this day. And I think for that reason, I got to give him a higher score than I really wanted to. <laughs> so I'd say, I'd say probably for the whole picture, I'd have to give him like a nine. I'd have to give him a nine. He, he gets a few point yeah. he gets a point off because you know he he made some missteps he got involved in some stuff but that was you know kind of separate um but yeah I think just because of of the fact that he, a lot of what he established still exists today he's got to be up there so he gets a nine from me and I I think you make a good point and and that's the thing like we there's so much you know whether it's, you know, we were talking about the Bank of New York that he helped to establish, um, the New York Evening Post, but then also just his overall and, and the Federalist Papers. Mm -hmm. The Federalist Papers are still turned to, to this day mm -hmm. by legal scholars, by courts to understand the Constitution and to be able to speak to constitutional law. Um even beyond and, and in the next category, we'll talk more about his, his role in the cabinet. But um, I, I think for that, I, I'm, I think I'm going to have to match you with the nine because he, his vision far beyond just the federal government, but the national economy is still very much present is very much relevant is, is, in action today. So I think that, that he deserves that high score for that. Mm -hmm. And so now kind of turning to his role as a cabinet member in uh, the category that we call the go-getter. Um, this round looks at the impact of the cabinet member during their time in the cabinet. So this is really focused on his, his position as secretary of the treasurer, as secretary of the treasury. So again, I, I feel like I got to give him a high mark for his his role. Um, you know, he negotiated his national bank that he wanted. And uh, part of those negotiations, I know we didn't touch on it too much, but, you know, we have our capital in Washington, D.C. because of the fact that he negotiated, okay, mm -hmm. I'll give you your southern capital if you give me my bank. Um, 
And so the seat of our government is as a result of, of really his, his push and his need for this national bank. And while he might probably should have mined his P's and Q's and, and stayed in his lane, he didn't. Um, and so he had an impact in diplomacy. He had an impact in domestic policy. He had an impact in the treasury. So again, I got to give him, I, I think I got to give him a 10. And that's the thing, like, you know, the fact that, you know, this is the first episode where we're just starting this journey. I'm trying to keep in mind who we've got coming up. True. Um, you know, there, there are so many cabinet members, well, not so many, but there, there are those key cabinet members that had a, a huge impact. But I think that Hamilton deserves a 10 as well, because it just ultimately gets to, he becomes the model of a cabinet member who really has an overall impact of the administration and just his impact in the affairs of the treasury department of, you know, getting the federal government going, getting the, the national debt um, handled, getting things, uh, you know, he, there is no denying that he was hugely influential mm-hmm. as a cabinet member in the administration, in the federal government, and became and, and established a legacy of what that could be, yep. of the impact of the the influence that a cabinet member could have. So I, I think I think he deserves top marks. Yep. But now we can get to the point (laughs) of talking about some of his shortcomings because in the hot seat category, this round discusses any disgraceful behavior of or actions committed by the cabinet member. And it doesn't have to be related to his tenure in office. With this, it will actually be negative points. So still that zero to 10 range, Uh but we will be taking off points based on how disgraceful we felt that he was. Yes. So this one's challenging for me because I think I'm naturally predisposed to be like 10, but that's <laughs> my own personal bias against him. So I don't want to do that to him. Um, so, you know, I, I'm thinking, okay, disgraceful behavior, really his, his big, huge deficit is he cheated on his wife. So, um, and continued to pay for the affair, which again, why, why, why? Um, so I feel like he's got to get some high marks just because of that. Um, mm-hmm. And then for me, you know, knowing kind of staying in your lane, like I, I, he's brilliant and he had a lot of great ideas and I, you know, I, I don't want to discredit that. But I think part of some of the later developments, the development of factions, the the awkwardness of the 1796, uh, you know, election, that that really is on him. So I, mm-hmm. I think, I think I got to give him, I got to give him like an eight, negative eight. Sorry, Hamilton. Well, and, and I, I think you get to some key points here, you know, that he, he often did not play well with others. You know, he was very, and, and, and you mentioned this as we were discussing him, you know, he would just kind of be overbearing at times and would not listen to anybody else 
would be kind of dismissive of them. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, you know, you're just wrong. Sorry. Mm -hmm. I'm right. Um, he, he didn't know how to really collaborate and, and stay in his lane. He would interfere when he would have been better advised just to take a step back, let things take its course. Um, also the Reynolds affair, just, you know, he, he's getting some marks for that. Um, and again, like thinking of this in terms of what cabinet members I know are coming ahead, there are some folks who are going to earn that, that full 10. Yeah. Hamilton is not one of them for the simple fact that in all of his disgrace in his affair in um, his political machinations um, in terms of the management of the treasury department, he kept things above the board. You know, he, he would shuffle some money around, but he didn't take it. And he justified, well, this is why this, this should have been, we really needed it here. Um, He, he really focused on that management piece and, and, did well with it. Um, one other thing that I'm considering with this is the whiskey rebellion and mm. the aftermath and everything that he did when he finally got a position, a command position, even though he probably shouldn't have <laughs> because it was a civilian in charge of military, but whatever that has to get him some points too. Yeah. Because he was using, he was abusing his authority for political gain, for settling scores, um, stuff that was done under his command, you know, just torturous conditions, um, his negative impact on the civilians that they took their supplies that they needed for the winter the callousness of it. Um, he's, he's got to earn some points. Um, I'm torn. I think I want to give him a seven here. Okay. I want to go a, a little, little below you, but I think that he is, even though he had such a, a strong impact and arguably a, a positive impact in his career and in his work as treasury secretary, he had some strong personal failings mm-hmm. and in particular, I mean, just that abuse of his authority. He, he's got to earn some marks here. So um, with that, that gets our disgrace score to a negative 15. Okay. So I, I, I'm comfortable with that. <laughs> so now our our next few categories. So we um with this we had we take into account his tenure of office, um, how long he was actually in the cabinet. Um so he was in the cabinet from September eleventh, seventeen eighty nine to January thirty first, seventeen ninety five. So that's roughly around it six years. Mm-hmm. So he gets six more points. Um, and then we have a few bonuses that cabinet members can earn um, if they served in more than one cabinet post, if they served in more than one presidential administration, or if they became president. Um, even though with that last one, I, I imagine that Hamilton would have liked that opportunity. Yes. 
Um, he does not get any of those bonus points. Those Though he kind of inserted him. himself into other cabinet positions. He wasn't officially <laughs> appointed, so he doesn't get the bonuses. <laughs> he does not get the bonuses. And Mr. Adams definitely would not have had him in his administration. <laughs> so with that, we are at a grand total of 29 points for Alexander Hamilton. All right. But now we have one more question to ask. After all we've talked about with his life and career, do you think that this cabinet member is notable enough or impactful enough to earn a seat at the table of the cabinet all-stars? I have to go with yes. I mean, uh, you know, we've talked, we've touched about, touched on a lot of, of his, his impacts already, but I think they, they bear repeating, you know, his vision for the country, his establishment of an economic system, you know, through his, his national bank, the placement of our capital, uh, the, the federalist papers, stuff that's like you said, still referred to today is taught in history classes in law schools and, and everywhere. Um, you know, I think, and and not necessarily because he he was the first but you know he set the tone he he set what the expectations were going to be he set what the job was and that continued so he established a roadmap for generations of treasury secretaries and i think for that alone yeah he he gets he gets a seat at the table yeah and and exactly he, he his work, you know, it wasn't guaranteed that a treasury secretary was really going to be able to get the budget, get the debt under control, get a national bank going, um, get these things that really did set up the nation for success. And to the point that, you know, as we'll learn about in future episodes, um, cabinet members that were more of the Jeffersonian persuasion, once they got into the cabinet, looked at what Hamilton did and they said, you know what? He really did have something here. Mm -hmm. He, this, this is really a good thing. Um, uh, we, we hate to admit it, but <laughs> Hamilton was right. Yep. And we're going to keep on doing what he said. Um, so yeah, I think that his influence on that time in history and the lasting legacy of it, I think he he has to have that seat at the table. Yep. So congratulations, Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> you are our first cabinet all-star. And with that, we are at the end of the episode. So I just wanted to take a moment again to thank Alicia for being here, um, for your insights and perspective as we examine this very complicated figure but impactful oh, yeah. figure in American history. Definitely. Thank you so much for having me on. This was a, a good time. And um, I was, I was really prepared to give him negative marks, but you did a, a beautiful job in, in highlighting really his, his impacts. And, you know, if it, in history, we have to be fair, even to the people that we might personally dislike. And uh, he was a, a, a faulted man, but he was a visionary and you, you can't take away what, what he did. So thanks so much for having me on. And I'm really excited. No problem. And for 
our listeners out there, now that you are done with this episode, please go and listen to Civics and Coffee everywhere fine podcasts can be found. And I will see you next time. Um, Thank you so much and stay safe and healthy. Be kind to one another and take care, dear friends. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts.